Will you pray with me, church? Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would reveal to each heart in this room the idols that we cling to. You would help us to see the emptiness of what they offer, and you would turn our eyes instead to the only one worthy of our all, the only one worth selling everything to follow, the only one who is good. We pray, Father, that you would stir in our hearts so that we might walk with you, we might obey you, and we might delight above all in your Son. Those are things only you can do, God, but we ask that you would, in Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the most iconic movies of the past few decades came out in 1994, and that's Forrest Gump. Uh, I imagine most of you are probably familiar with the story, but if not, it's about a man with a very low IQ who is sitting on a park bench kind of recounting uh, how he was somehow in some cool way connected with basically all the major world events of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, And one example uh, is he tells this story of how his friend, Lieutenant Dan, uh, invest some of their money in what Forrest calls some kind of fruit company, which turns out to be Apple computers. So he thinks it's a fruit company, but it's Apple, right? So he obviously makes a ton of money on this investment. Uh, and he, uh, he said, I won't do the accent for you because I know it's insulting. Um, it's actually one of my better accents, which is really tells you how horrible all my other accents I do are. Uh, But anyway, he gets a big check in the mail and he says, Lieutenant Dan told me we don't have to worry about money no more. And I said, that's good. One less thing. And there's something so endearing about that, right? We don't have to worry about money because we've got so much of it, right? And this is one less thing to have to worry about. And uh, endearing as it is, I think we would all love if it really were that simple if just having so much money makes it so you never have to worry about it again. But in our passage this morning, we're going to meet someone who, like Forrest, had so much money, you'd think he didn't have to worry about it anymore. And we'll see him meet Jesus, and we'll find he does indeed have to worry about his money. So today, we're in Matthew chapter 19. In this section over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, Jesus kind of turn his attention, turn his focus in to his disciples, showing them what life in the kingdom looks like. What does it look like if you're a disciple of Jesus? And so we saw that involves chasing after the lost sheep. It involves pursuing gospel reconciliation with those who have wronged you. Uh, Last week, we saw life in the kingdom specifically for those who are married means a a commitment to uh, obeying his commands, to not pursuing what you think your own desires and happiness are. We'll we'll actually, we'll we'll achieve that, but actually trusting that God's ways are good and that his ways actually do ultimately lead to our true joy. And this week, we're going to continue talking about life in the kingdom. And in this passage, Jesus kind of sets up a contrast for us. We're going to see two profiles here in this passage. One is the profile of the poor, the humble and afflicted, the rejected. And the other is a profile of, the, of a prosperous, self-dependent man. And what Jesus is going to do is, is pull back the curtain of eternity and show us which one of these two profiles we should really be seeking after. Which one of these two is what we should really want? So let's go ahead and dive into that first profile here, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not 
hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This first profile, as I said, is of the humble, the helpless, and the rejected in the world. We've actually seen Jesus use this illustration before. So if you just turn back a page in your Bible to Matthew 18, verses 2 through 4, this is what happened. It says, and calling to him a child, Jesus is in the midst of the people and his disciples in particular, says, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's almost identical words to what we see him using here in Matthew 19, right? And so very clearly from that passage, the the illustration, the metaphor that Jesus has set up for us is that this is what he's looking for. This is what he demands of his disciples, childlikeness. A child is humble and dependent as Jesus' disciples must be humble and dependent on him. I, think, I do think it's worth saying the fact that Jesus grabbed this image of a child, uh, that that's, that's where he went, shows us his heart, his, his just tender affection for children. Uh, it's, I think it's very moving, very stirring. It's, that's part of it. But the, the main point here, I think, is very clearly the metaphor. What children represent to Jesus is this humble dependence, this, this helplessness, this coming to Jesus with nothing in your hands. That's what a child represents. And that's why to such, Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus welcomes the humble and helpless. But as we see very clearly in just these few verses, not everyone else does. In fact, everyone else, uh, even Jesus' own disciples, miss the point here. The, The disciples see these children crowding around Jesus and they rebuke the people. They say, get these children out of here. These, you know, snot nosed kids. Jesus doesn't have time for them. They're, they're probably thinking, Jesus is so important. Don't they know we're, we're putting together a big movement, right? We're, things are happening. We're, we're starting to gather a, a crowd. We're starting to make things work. And these little children, man, no one needs these needy little kids around. We don't need them here ruining things for us. Jesus has better things to do with his time. So this first profile is simply those who the kingdom of heaven belongs to who are despised and rejected and helpless in the world, and yet who Jesus joyfully welcomes when no one else does. That's what a disciple is. That's the picture Jesus would have in our minds. What does it look like when I'm following him in the world? It means the world isn't interested in me. They want to kind of, you know, skedaddle out of here, kids. But I'm just humbly dependent. I'm just coming to him. And really, the main thing this is doing for us, because Jesus has already showed us that, the, the, the reason Matthew brings this back in his gospel is to set up this contrast with the second profile, a man that we meet in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is a famous passage. And in this section, this man asks Jesus three different questions, and each question he, he asks Jesus reveals something more about him. So we learn, we, it unveils more about his character, his assumptions, and what he's looking for from Jesus every time he opens his mouth and speaks. And this first question, just right off the bat, we see very clearly this is a man of supreme self-confidence. Supreme self-confidence. I mean, look at what he says. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? The implication is he just needs a little information, right? I can handle whatever it is, Jesus, I'll handle it. You just give me the download, tell me what I need to know, and I can do it. It's, it's, it's like if, uh, if I were to walk into an operating room in the hospital, scrub in, okay, everyone, what surgery are we doing today? The open heart surgery? An appendectomy, it doesn't matter. I can handle it, right? And if you are the person on the operating table, when I come in and say that, you should run out of there. Like, you don't want to be there. That, you are in serious danger, right? Because that supreme self-confidence ain't going to help anybody. But that's this man, right? He, he comes here and he's just, 
man. He's got all the swagger, all the self-confidence in the world. And it's completely different, of course, than the childlike humility we saw. But that's, that's who he is. He's a man of supreme self-confidence. And Jesus answers his question. He says to him in verse 17, and Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So in that response, Jesus does two important things. At the end, he does tell him the right answer. You want to you know what good deed you must do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. But at the very beginning, he challenges this man's arrogance, his self-confidence, and says, only one is good implied, and it's not you. You're not, you're not the one who can keep the commandments. Only one is good. So yeah, I'm going to give you the information, but it's not going to help you. And so this man asks his second question, verse 18. He said to him, which ones? That's an odd question to ask. Any self-respecting Jew would know the commandments. I mean, come on, you know your Old Testament. If you're a first century Jew and you're coming to a rabbi like Jesus, you know what the commandments are. So why does he ask which ones? Well, I think we can, we can kind of imagine the situation here. We can, we can figure out what's, what's going on. Jesus has been teaching and healing uh, throughout Matthew's gospel. He's, he's probably gaining a group of followers. He's the next big thing in town. And this guy shows up because he's the kind of guy who follows the hype. Who, okay, there's something new and exciting going on over here. I want to follow that. I'm, I'm interested in that. He wants to, whatever the new religious thing is, he doesn't want to miss out. So he, he comes to Jesus expecting something new. That's why he asks which ones. What, 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 what's, the, what's the really juicy thing you've got, Jesus? There, there are people like this all across our country today. A new bestseller in the religion category comes out and you know, promising some cutting edge spirituality or some new insight and it flies off the shelves. People eat it up and maybe even say, you know, my life will never be the same. Of course, until the next bestseller comes out, the next religious trend arrives. But that's, that's this man here. He loved the new, the innovative spirituality. That's what he's coming to Jesus for. And that's why he asks which ones, surely, when Jesus gives him his answer, he's thinking, surely he's not just sending me back to the same boring old commandments. There's got to be something else here. And we can expect he's probably disappointed with Jesus's response. Second half of verse 18, Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in response, which commandments are you talking about? Jesus answers. And it's, it's really interesting. Jesus rattles off about half of the 10 commandments in Exodus 20, but he only does the second half. So if you're familiar for Exodus 20, right, there's 10 commandments, hence the name, 10 commandments, very creative. But there's, there's what's called first tablet commandments and second tablet commandments, right? So first tablet commandments are all about your relationship with God. So the classic, you know, you shall have no other gods before me, no graven images, don't take the Lord's name in vain. It's all about your relationship with God. That's the first tablet, the first half of the 10 commandments. And then the second tablet, the second half is all about your relationship with other people. So it's the things Jesus mentions here. Honor your parents, don't steal, those kind of things. How you relate with your community. So first tablet, how you relate with God. Second tablet, how you relate with others. And Jesus here only talks about the second half. The love your neighbor commandments. In fact, Jesus kind of explains this first, second tablet thing to us. He summarizes the 10 commandments like this later in Matthew. He says, here's what, here's what the commandments are. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, tablet one. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's the second tablet. So this guy asks, which commandments must I keep? And Jesus only talks about the second tablet commandments. Why does he do that? Well, we're gonna see why in just a little bit. But first the man asks his 
Final question, verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? This is actually the first time we learn something about the man from Matthew. He says he's a young man. It's, it's kind of funny. This, is, this story, this passage is commonly known as the rich young ruler. And all the, all the accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that he was rich. Uh, Mark, or sorry, Matthew is the only one that tells us he was young, and Luke's the only one that tells us he was a ruler. So that title's kind of pieced together. But he's the rich young ruler. It's definitely the same guy. And when Jesus says, keep the commandments to this young man who's supremely self-confident and chasing after whatever's new and exciting... The answer he basically gets is, the young man gives is, yeah, yeah, I've done that. What else is there? Again, we see his desire for something new, something exciting, but I think actually we see more than that. Maybe, maybe it's the pride of youth. Maybe, maybe that's what's going on here, but he just makes this outlandish claim and says, I've kept all the commandments. It's the very first word out of his mouth, all. I've done them all which is crazy. Obviously, we all know no one can do that. But what is actually even crazier is that despite all his pride, all his self-confidence, all his meticulous rule-keeping, he still has this sense of a lack. He still, he still knows he's, he's missing something. He has the sense there actually is something else. What do I lack and maybe that's the main reason he came to Jesus. It's heartbreaking to look at him. I mean, striving like crazy. He's convinced himself he's got all the commandments down, and that just sounds terribly exhausting. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. Right? Ima imagine this life of just this constant anxiety. I've got to do it perfectly every single time. And yet still, he has this nibbling fear that something's missing. Uh, my son, Eric, uh, got a little tag on his backpack a few weeks ago uh, for having perfect attendance at school for the first quarter of the semester, which was a very, very big deal. We're very proud parents, obviously. Amazing. But he was sick this past Monday, so his perfect record is gone. It's shattered. It's It's ended. Because all it takes is one little slip to ruin perfection. One little sick day and his sweet little perfect record is gone. And just imagine, what if we as parents put like some crazy pressure on him? You will get a perfect attendance tag every single semester. Like this is what we live for. If we just put this pressure on him, you must have it. Imagine the exhaustion he would feel, imagine the anxiety he would feel. He would never go on vacation, never allowed to get sick. Even if you're sick, guess what? You're going to suffer through it at school. One little slip ruins perfection, and so you're constantly in fear. And fear is the inevitable result of a salvation by works. What this young man is chasing after, this earning your way up to God, is a terrifying burden, and it's terrifying because one little slip and you fall. You're standing at a precipice your whole life. I don't want to take the wrong step or I go over the edge. And this man is in fear. He has that sense of missing something. And the sad thing is, he is missing something. He doesn't have a perfect record. He just doesn't realize it. And so what Jesus says to him next shows him what he's missing. Verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. And in response to Jesus' words, for the very first time, this young man, who is full of confidence, is silent. He has nothing to say. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
to repeat his own question, what did he lack? What is he missing? Well, Jesus, in his response, put his finger right on it. He was missing the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus lists all the second half, all the second tablet commandments. And he left out the first half because he wanted this man to realize it himself. What, what are you missing? On day one, your perfect attendance record was shattered because you have another God. And we know that because he was unwilling to follow Jesus if it meant giving up the God, his possessions, his wealth, the God that he loved most. So as we just kind of step back and, and look at this young man, I think we can summarize him kind of in modern terms pretty well as a good American. That's who he is. He's just a good American. If he were alive today, let's, let's be honest, we would respect and recognize him as a champion of our values. Look at him. I mean, he's followed the American dream, right? He's got money. He's self-sufficient. No one can tell him what to do. He's, he's on his own. He's, he has a moral code even. That's great. We love that. He's got a little religion in his life. I'm keeping the commandments, right? He's not just some jerk or something like that. He has a moral code. He works hard. He's successful at a young age. We love that kind of guy. This is the kind of guy the world celebrates. We lift him up. I mean, he might even be Mr. McKinney. Is that a thing? I hope it's not a thing, right? But, but if there was such a thing as Mr. McKinney, we found him. The winner's here, right? He's nothing like those, those needy little kids from earlier, right? Those snot-nosed kids who are just crowding around Jesus when he's trying to do important things. No, no, no. This man, all right, Jesus, I'm just not going to take too much of your time. Give me what I need and I'll go. He's a good American. But what we find at the end is that the very thing he and everyone else would have viewed as a blessing to him was a curse. His self-sufficiency and success had poisoned him to pride. His interest in new and exciting things, right? Grab it. What's, what's the hot new thing? It's left him without a foundation. He just follows the hype. And, and as I've already said, that's American spirituality too. That, that's how we approach religion most of the time. We're a, a melting pot of spirituality. That's the average American, right? Read this new self-help guru, maybe try these crystals, sprinkle in some Jesus on top, you'll be good to go. And worst of all, this man, his financial prosperity, which everyone thinks is freedom, is a slavery to him. It's a burden because it's his God. He thinks he has money, and yet we see very clearly at the end, his money has him. Uh, the Bible talks a whole lot about idolatry. If you read the Old Testament, it's all over the place, right? Idolatry, we know, yeah, the, the Israelites, come when Moses comes down off the mountain, they're worshiping the golden calf, idolatry, right? Or later in the history of Israel, they're going up on the mountains and they're worshiping little statues of Asherah or Baal, and they're, they're worshiping idols, right? So that, it's all over the Old Testament. And we think, you know, idols are something constricted to those pagan religions of the past, you got to go up on a mountain. You got to go in a temple. Maybe you have some in your house and a little shrine. That's an idol. And we think, you know, we're better than that. We're more advanced. We don't have idols. We don't worship little statues, things of our own making. And we may have thrown out the little statues, but clearly we've replaced them with other gods. We have new gods, a full bank account, physical beauty, Influence, power, success. We are full of idols. We have plenty of them. Even if we can convince ourselves we're, we're further along than those pagan religions of the past, they still remain. We just call them other names. Tim Keller, in an excellent book called Counterfeit Gods, defines an idol. He says, he says an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. 
And what's important to see about that definition is that idols aren't just bad things, right? Obviously, a statue of a golden calf, bad thing, avoid, right? Idols aren't just bad things. Idols can be good things that we make ultimate things, that we make into gods. So physical, financial well-being, are those bad things? Of course not. But if we ultimatize them, if we begin to believe we must have them to be happy, we have a new God. Political involvement, it's a common one today. Should you be involved politically? Sure, it's a good thing. You should care about these kind of things. But if if your candidate is the Messiah and the other candidate is the Antichrist, that's a real good sign. You've got a new God. It's idolatry. Marriage, grades, a new car, obedient kids, a better job, anything, any good thing that becomes an ultimate thing can so easily take first priority in your heart and become a God. That's idolatry. An idol is anything that, like this man, would lead you to walk away when Jesus says, follow me. You must have no other gods before him. That's the first commandment. And so to unveil the danger, Jesus turns to his disciples and he shows them where these idols really lead. So this man's wealth, it looked like it was going to promise him success and happiness for his whole life. He's young and he's got all this money. It's going to be great. Jesus shows us where that leads. Verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So here is one of the passages in the Bible that we get part of Jesus' theology of wealth. So Jesus talks about money a lot. The whole Bible talks about money a lot. And this is an incredibly important passage. We see what Jesus thinks about it. And see, what's important to know is some of the context here. In the first century, the assumption was anyone who was listening to Jesus is assuming if you've got money, that is a surefire sign of God's favor. God only gives money to people he really likes. And so if you've got money, if you've got wealth, it shows that he likes you. And it's also a pretty good indicator you'll probably go to heaven. I mean, he already likes you. He's already made this life a little easier for you by giving you money. And so, of course, you're going to get into heaven. You'll be just fine. That's that's the assumption of everyone in Jesus's audience here, that wealth was only a blessing and never a problem. And Jesus flips it completely upside down. Jesus says, actually, wealth, riches, makes it less likely, more difficult for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And to show that, he uses a famous image of a camel being squeezed through the eye of a needle. We'll come back to the image in just a minute. But first, I want us to just kind of get this whole exchange in front of us here to to understand what Jesus is really saying. So verses 25 and 26. Uh, So after he gives this illustration, it says, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So there are two things Jesus is showing here. First, he is showing the universal impossibility of a man-made salvation. The universal impossibility of a man-made salvation. That's the mistake of this young man. So yes, Jesus is in context, specifically talking about rich people, but the punchline at the end is comprehensive. It's universal, right? The disciples ask, who can be saved? Not, you know, how can a rich person be saved, but but who at all? How could anyone get into heaven if this is the standard? And he tells them, with man, period. Not with rich man, just any man. With man, it is impossible. That's what the young man missed. You cannot keep the commandments. Entering the kingdom of heaven by any man-made means doesn't work. Because Jesus said back in verse 17, only one is good. No one can meet this bar. No one can earn their way up to God. Salvation is impossible universally when it's in the hands of men. 
And then the second thing Jesus teaches here is what I'm going to call the elevated impossibility of salvation for those with wealth. The elevated impossibility of salvation for those with wealth. Where where do we get that? Well, let's go back to the camel and needle illustration. What what exactly is Jesus describing here? Uh, And unfortunately, the, the first thing I have to do is dispel some false claims that are out there. Uh, Some of you may have heard this, I'll call it a theory. There's a theory out there uh, about this passage, and it goes like this, uh, that there's this gate in first century Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And it was called that because it was a small gate. So it 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 was pretty tiny. It was a gate, though. And so to get your camel through, you would have to take off all its baggage and you'd really have to kind of, you know, shimmy yourself and the camel through this little tunnel of some kind. That, that's this theory that's out there. So the, the implication then is it's, it's hard to do. Right? You got to take off the baggage. It's a pain. It's, it's, a, it's a nuisance. You got to shimmy the camel through. It's, it's kind of hard, just like it's kind of hard for a rich person to get into heaven. The big problem, though, with that theory is no such gate exists. It is completely fabricated. It is not true whatsoever. Uh, I will say, just so you know, if you go to modern Israel, you might get a tour guide who will take you to a gate that's small-ish and say, this is the eye of the needle gate. They are lying to you. It is not. There is no archaeological, textual, historical evidence whatsoever that a gate like that ever existed, much less that it exists today and has been standing for 2,000 years when in 70 AD, the Romans came through and leveled the whole city. It's just not true. Okay, sorry I'm going nuclear on this, but it is offensive when people change what the Bible says to me. Uh, Right, so, and worse, okay, I'll just, a little more on this. The gate theory is the worst part of it is it's really just an attempt to soften the hard words Jesus says here. Jesus says something that should offend us. He's not saying, it's kind of hard if you're wealthy. Just imagine, you know how you got to shimmy that camel? It's not easy. Not what he's saying. He's saying there is an elevated impossibility for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is a hard thing to hear. And he agrees. So that's why the disciples are so astonished their reaction, they're like, who can be saved? And Jesus doesn't say, yeah, it's hard to get the camel through. No, 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 no. He says, yes, it's impossible, period. It is impossible. Man-made salvation is a universal impossibility and there is an elevated impossibility for those with wealth. That's why Jesus says, verse 23, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like he's saying, salvation is impossible for everyone, and it's more impossible for the rich. Now, what, how, how does that work? You're probably maybe thinking, okay, this is ridiculous and weird. How can something be impossible and something else be more impossible? Let me explain. I'm a terrible swimmer, bad swimmer, okay? Most of the other people in my family, competitive swimmers, I can successfully not drown. That's about it. Okay, you want me to get from here to there? It's not going to happen. And if it does, I will be almost drowning at the end, right? I'm a bad swimmer. So if I were to race Michael Phelps, I would lose. Shocker. I know, you're amazed. But let's just say the race between me and Michael Phelps was the 4,000 miles from California to Japan. Guess what? Michael Phelps loses two, right? He's going to get further than me. I'm going to lose by more. It's impossible for both of us, but it's more impossible for me. That's, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to say here. That's works righteousness. It's true. Some, yeah, if, if getting, earning your way to God is, is what we're trying to do, some people might be doing better than others. They might have more moral lives, right? They might be, uh, have, have better character. They might not be drawn away by some of the things of this world. Great. Guess what? If the objective is to jump to the moon, it doesn't matter how high you can jump. If the standard is that high, it is universally impossible. And yeah, sure, it's more impossible for some people. In the same way, with man, with man, entrance into heaven is impossible. Doesn't matter how clean your record is. And yet wealth makes it more impossible. Why? Because it exerts a powerful hold on the human heart. Wealth is a powerful hold. God. And so, Parkway Church, this is an idol we need to be well aware of. 
Let's call this what it is. We live in an affluent city, in an affluent part of the country, in an affluent country. We have wealth all around us. It's a temptation we will face. And all the pressures of the do-it-yourself, achieve your dreams, swim in the money pot culture are crushing in on us. And guess what? We love it. We drink that in. Because it's telling us this is a God you can follow. But in the end, it's nothing more than a trap beneath our feet that only elevates the impossibility of an already impossible salvation. But here's the good news. The good news is with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Yes, Jesus is flipping this assumption on its head that wealth is a guaranteed sign of God's favor. He's saying, watch out. It can just as easily and more likely become an idol, can become a God, a curse on your life. But that doesn't mean we should overreact and start thinking that no wealthy person could ever actually be saved or that poverty is inherently virtuous. No, man-made salvation is a universal impossibility and an elevated impossibility for those with wealth. And yet we follow a God who is in the business of conquering impossibilities. That's what he does. He can turn the hardest self-sufficient heart into clay in his hands so that those who trusted in their wealth love and treasure Christ. He can, he can banish any idol we cherish and call us to his grace and show us his riches in Christ. God is in the business of doing that all the time. I love there's a great example of that in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus, you might know him from apparently, I wasn't raised in the church, so I miss a lot of the corny things that those of you who were raised in the church know about, but there's like a little song about him being a wee little man. I'm not going to sing it for you because I don't know it, and I wouldn't anyway. Uh, But Zacchaeus, he's a short guy, and he's rich. He has all this wealth. And yet, when Jesus comes to town, he does everything he can to get to him. He's desperate for him. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't just reject him. Oh, you're, you're rich and wealthy. Get out of here. I don't have time for you. No, he welcomes him. And he loves him. And he, he doesn't command him to sell all his stuff because Zacchaeus coming to Jesus showed that Zacchaeus' God was no, or wealth was no longer his God. He no longer had that idol in his life. He was willing to give anything up to follow Jesus. That, that's the problem with some people will universalize this command that Jesus gives the rich young ruler as if this is what it, you must do to become a disciple, right? You must sell everything you have and give it all to the poor and follow Jesus. But I think that's a mistake. Uh, yeah, sure, maybe this is an idol of yours and maybe generosity is a necessary way for you to kill it. But Jesus is identifying this man's idol, the thing he loves more than anything else in this world. And so it's a mistake for us to just, you know, universalize a command that he's giving to this one man. We need to heed the warning, but we don't need to universalize this one specific command he gives to the man. We all have idols to abandon. And depending on the idol, the way in which we abandon them might look different. But we must abandon our idols to come to Christ. But that is not where this passage ends. Jesus very wonderfully has one final thing to show us here. For those who, like the little children, are humble and helpless, independent, and rejected in the world, Jesus does not want us to think sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. That's what it means to be a disciple. He also promises unimaginable reward. That's what we get to see next in verse 27. So, says, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter's asking a question on behalf of all of Jesus' disciples. He sees this rich man who, who was loved by the world and yet rejected Christ. And he wonders what becomes of those rejected by the world, but in love with Christ. And it's not a selfish question. It's not, it's not inherently wrong to ask, what are the benefits? What's the gains of following Jesus? Jesus loves to answer that question. And he does here. Actually, he invites Peter. He invites his disciples. He invites us to weigh the costs and rewards of discipleship on the scales of eternity. And here's what those rewards are. Verse 28. 
Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Uh, to kind of wrap our minds around this, uh, these rewards of discipleship, I want us to just look at very briefly, three things about the rewards Jesus promises. And the first thing is incredibly important, the timing of our reward, the timing of our reward. Jesus says, this will be in the new world, in the new world. He's, he's pointing back actually to a phrase from the prophet Isaiah and something that John will pick up in the book of Revelation. Here's what Isaiah says. And what God says to Isaiah, rather. He says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And Isaiah, in that passage, he goes on to describe this amazing world where there is no pain, there is no tears, there's no death, there's no sorrow. But the important thing we see here in Matthew and in Isaiah is that the timing of that reward is ahead. It's in the future. It's coming, the full arrival of this new glorious world where God, the rewards for God's people are lavished on us is ahead. Some of the worst heresies in the world today go wrong right here on this point. They miss the timing of the reward. There are false teachings around promising Full, the full rewards of discipleship here and now in this life. That, don't get me wrong. There are blessings to following Jesus in this life. But the full and final arrival of those blessings is ahead. So there's those today who preach what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. And I put it in quotes because it's not prosperity and it's not the gospel this is what they fail to realize. And there are many of these preachers in our country, in Texas, in Dallas, who claim God is offering you health and wealth right now. As if the, the rewards of discipleship are uh, as, only as good as the cheap trinkets of this world and that God is only going to give them to us for the brief span of years we get to live here and now. That's not... That's not the Bible's teaching on the rewards of discipleship. In fact, those same preachers would probably not say what Jesus said to this rich young ruler. They would say, chase after more money. Chug your idolatry. Follow your God. Because that's what they're encouraging people to do today. And yet, Jesus does demand sacrifice and he does promise the timing of our reward is ahead. Second, here we see not just the timing, but the nature of our reward. Jesus promises kind of two things together in this passage. He promises we will reign with him and that all the sacrifices we make for him will return 100-fold. Uh, there's a lot in here. We, I wish we could say everything. We don't have the time for it. The good news, uh, next year, we'll get to Matthew 24 and 25 which is just two big chapters we'll spend about two months in. That's all about eschatology or the, the end times. So some of the stuff, we can kick the can down the curb, down the curb, down the road a little bit uh, until, until we get to Matthew 24, 25. We'll spend two months in uh, theology of the end times, what the Bible teaches. But just a couple of things briefly. Uh, Jesus promises his followers will sit on 12 thrones. Now, I don't think he's speaking only to his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples who are there. I think he's speaking to all of his people. 12 in uh, eschatology and throughout the whole Bible is typically symbolic for the totality of God's people. So all of those who are followers of God are usually represented by the number 12. You see that in the book of Revelation, for example. And we see elsewhere that this reigning with Christ is a promise for every single Christian. So 2 Timothy 2 says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. So Christ promises a rulership, a reign for those who are his people, that he will sit on his throne and we will sit next to him. 
And we also see here that hundredfold promise of return on everything we could ever give up in sacrifice for him. And so the nature of our reward, very simply, is this total reversal. It's a total reversal. There are those who are humble and rejected, but they will reign. There are those who are dependent and poor, and they will prosper. There are better things ahead. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. So don't believe what it looks like now in the world. Don't fall for that trap like the rich young man did. Look ahead. And then finally, the third aspect of the blessings of of discipleship here is their duration. Jesus says very simply, I'll give you eternal life. Eternal life. Uh, Blaise Pascal is a famous French philosopher who uh, once wrote about uh, this kind of wager of faith. Uh, This is a summary of my notes of Pascal. It's not a direct quote, but basically it went like this. He said, if I believe and I am right, I gain everything. If I believe and I am wrong, I lose nothing. If I disbelieve and I am right, I gain nothing. And if I disbelieve and I am wrong, I lose everything. When the rich young ruler left Jesus behind, when he walked away from him, he made a bad bet. He made a bad bet. He was a ruler, but here Christ promises that all of his followers will sit on thrones. He was rich, but Christ promises 100-fold return on investment for anything you ever give up for following him. And he was young. He thought he had his whole life ahead of him to enjoy all the wealth and power he had accumulated to himself. But only Christ offers eternal life. He made a bad bet. His God would not last. And on the day that he died, he lost everything. C.S. Lewis very famously remarked, this should be a familiar quote. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum when he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus offers a holiday at sea and infinitely more. May we never be satisfied with anything less. See, here's the truth about our idols, the things that have this hold over our heart like wealth did over this young man. They cannot just be removed. Our idols, we can't just cut them out. We can't just remove them. They have to be replaced. We must find a richer treasure. We must find a higher joy. As Jesus says right at the beginning of this passage, there's only one who's good. There's only one. And get this. Here's what that one did. 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How do you replace your idols? You weigh them against Christ in the scales of eternity. You take a good look at him and you look at the prize he offers and you see there's nothing this world could ever give that's worth it. It's worth chasing after the things of this world. Everything in Christ is everything to me. It's all I could ever want. If Christ is your treasure, you can say with Forrest Gump, I don't have to worry about money no more. Not because he fills your bank account, but because he gives you a wealth far greater than the riches of this world. He gives you a prosperity that outweighs anything this world could ever offer. And your idols will lose their hold. No matter how much you have or don't have, your idols will lose their hold when you find the infinite riches of a beautiful savior. Uh, David Livingston who was a famous missionary to Africa, probably heard of him, Dr. Livingston, I presume, right? 
He once wrote, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And so Livingston concludes, I never made a sacrifice. When we weigh Christ in the scales of eternity and like Livingston, find that compared with the glory ahead, there's nothing we could ever lose that would not make any sacrifice worth it. When we do that, we will find true joy, true fulfillment, true satisfaction in the only one who can truly give it. Because one day the first will be last and the last will be first. Let's pray. Christ, you are a tender Savior, and we thank you for the surgical work you do in digging into our hearts and revealing and exposing the idols that we feel. And we pray you would keep us from getting comfortable with them. You would keep us from allowing them to remain and you would stir in us a great delight in you, a treasuring of your goodness and your glory that we would weigh you on the scales of eternity and see you are worth everything. So God, we pray you would expose our idols and you would replace them with the glory of your son. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.